0: Good morning. So, right back into our series on Colossians, week number two. So, it'll be chapter one. It's the verse, the passage that Rick read earlier. So, starting at verse 15, just got to get everything ready here. So just to remind us, so last week we started into the book of Colossians, and um, so just as a quick reminder, kind of what we looked at last week, the book of Colossians um, was a letter written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to this church in Colossae. It's a church he had never been to himself. It was planted by a na- man named Epaphras, and probably heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and. Uh, and then took it to his hometown and, and started the church there in Colossae. And here we are a number of years later, and Epaphras has gone to find Paul in prison. Paul wrote it in prison. Gone to find Paul in prison because the church is in trouble. And it really, it's been it's being the pressure is coming into the church um, from the world and their teaching. And the big one back then was called Gnosticism. And it really just means what it was all about was that there was this kind of this secret knowledge that you had to have to get to God. And so they hadn't rejected their Christianity, right? They had just kind of pushed Jesus to the side a little bit and made him lesser. And so it was, yes, Jesus, yeah, the basics, yeah, 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 but now there's this, now that you're a Christian, now there's this secret knowledge you have to have and these different levels you go through and this kind of thing. And so they kind of added this on. And that's really what there is. really, just simply for our day, how we can apply it, it was, it was the The ideology, the philosophy of the world was coming into the church. And so that's what was happening here. And so Epaphras sees this problem and he goes to Paul, and then Paul writes this letter in response. And we said, really, this letter, if you were to call the theme of it, what's it all about? It is to establish and exalt Jesus. I think that was Paul's goal in writing this letter, it was just to reestablish Jesus as the foundation and then exalt him, lift our eyes up. And so that's what we talked about last week. We looked at kind of our, our three big ideas, um, and we're gonna, you'll see these all throughout the letter because it was one flowing letter written. Jesus, our foundation, reestablishing him as, as the foundation, the church, and our lives are built on. He's the truth that our lives are built on. Jesus, our devotion, and so last, last week we simply worded it as do you want to please him? There was a verse in there last week that says, walk in a manner worthy that pleases him. Right? We just simply ask, being devoted is, is a heart choice. Right? Do you want to be devoted to him? And then all of that made possible because he's our salvation and the life in us. And what we, we did this morning in communion, you know, his death on the cross is what, is what saves us, even gives us the opportunity to have relationship with God. But then it's his life through us that allows us to walk that life worthy. And so it goes right from that. It's kind of the introduction to the letter. And then it goes right into these verses that we're here, in here today. And starting at verse 15, just to, guys, real easy. What We're only going to do six verses today, 15 down to 20. But you'll see here right at the beginning, the first two words in verse 15, he is. And that's what this section is all about. It is one of the most densely packed Jesus passages in the entire Bible. And I said last week when I was trying to figure out like what do we do as our first series, and I just thought, I just want to get to Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. We know he's the foundation. He's the thing that unites us. And so this is the section that, that came to mind when I thought of why Colossians is because of this section. And so I hope everybody, everybody got you a theology hat this morning. All right, you can put that on. This is going to be, we're going to go deep. It's, it's so dense, right? So we're going to get into what this word means, what that word means, and share with you in the Greek and all that stuff, like what it all means. But why? Why, why do we go to that? So here's the goals for this morning, though. And here, I'll, I'll do my best. One is that we want to reveal any blind spots we have. Because the Colossian church, those Colossian Christians, I don't think they saw it. I don't think they consciously went, you know what? The Christianity we heard, the gospel originally, it's not good enough. We're going to add this to it. I think it was a slow fade, you know? And these things had, had come into the church slowly, and they didn't even see it. They were blind to it. And so what is it in the pressures of, the, of today in the world that we live that have, have crept into our view of who Jesus is that needs to be corrected? And so that's one of the reasons we really want to get into these foundation. Who is Jesus? And remind ourselves of that. And then the second thing, I'll try, do my best to try and apply it. How does that actually play out then? How do we apply that to our lives today? These, this theology that as we get into it. What's that, what's that have to do with me? Right? And so that's the goal for this morning. So we'll start, we'll get right into it here. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so image there, what that word means is the exact likeness in revelation. That's what the word in Greek, when it was translated, means. So I'm just going to take a quick tangent here for a second um, and do this once, and a <laughs> um, just a, the, the reason why, why do preachers do that? In the Greek, it was, you know, why, why do we do that? So so the quick question, you may already know a lot of this, but the Bible wasn't written in English. I think we probably all figured that one out, right? So it wasn't written in English, it was translated into English. So the Bible was written Old Testament in Hebrew, because it was written by Hebrews, right? They sometimes call it the Hebrew Bible, written in Hebrew. And then there was, and that was up until about 400 BC before Christ, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. And because, that's because that 400-year gap, um, we don't have it in our Bibles, but history, a guy named Alexander the Great, heard of him? Right? Alexander the Great comes along, conquers the known world, and he was Macedonian, or modern-day Greece. So he conquered the whole world, and one of the things he did in conquering was he instilled Greek education, language, philosophy into everywhere he he conquered it. They call it, if you look it up in the history, any history buffs, it was the Hellenization of the world. He Hellenized the world. And so, so anyway, so that's the reason that by the time you get to Jesus' day, we have Greek is the trade language. It's the language of higher education, right? And so the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in Greek in order to be able to reach the most people. Um, but then then they translated then into, it became Latin, became the language of the Roman Empire, right? And then from Latin into English. And most modern translations today, they actually, we have so many Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, they went back to those. And so it's, they've taken right from there and translated as best they can into English with the Latin as kind of the, as a guide. And so, that's how we get the modern translations we have today. We actually live in a pretty amazing time in history that a lot of those original manuscripts were found in like the 60s. You heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff, right? So we actually live in a pretty cool time in history where we found these things from 2,000 years before and uh, and they were 99.9% the same as, as what we have in our Bibles that hadn't passed down for 2,000 years. Pretty neat. So amazing. Um, so that's the reason we go to the Greek. So you've probably heard that is that Sometimes there just isn't an English word that correlates to the one exactly. We might have a different idea of what image means. So that's why we go, this is what the Greek meant. And uh, it's to help us better understand. So you've probably heard of the, there's four words in Greek for love, and we only one in English, right? You've probably heard of that one. So that's an example. So your Bibles will say brotherly love, because, but it's only one word, phileo, in Greek. It's, uh, we have to kind of add an adjective or something to help us understand context. So little sidebar there, but that's the reason. I think it's important that we look into the original language if we're going to really understand what it's saying here. So image, image here then, get back to that, the exact likeness in Revelation. So this is one of those instances, because when we think image, we sometimes think like before they had pictures, you know, you'd get, the king would get a painting made, right? And if you wanted to kind of have an idea of what the king looked like, you look at the portrait, the image they made of him. But um, that's not what this word's trying to talk about. This is the exact Likeness and revelation. And so, really, what it's saying is that it's revealing what is there. It's revealing. And that's why he is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says God is spirit. And so, this here, what Paul's doing is he's saying, Look, it, Jesus just revealed God. He is God in the flesh, right? Revealed to us. And that's what that word incarnation means. If you've heard that around, we're coming up to Christmas time. That word incarnation comes from the Latin that means to put on flesh. That's what Jesus did. So Jesus isn't an image of God. He's not kind of a picture of who God is. He is God. He simply revealed to our eyes who God is. Amen. Amen. He is the image of the invisible God. And and that's just how amazing that is um, that we have a God who came and lived the same human life that we are living, right? And so the fact that we have God in the flesh that lived this life perfectly is a perfect example for us. For us, how do we apply this? How does this, what does this matter to us? We're asking that question all day today. That image is that we have, if we want to know how to live out the Christian life, we have the perfect example. God came in the flesh and lived it as an example. And so that's why you probably remember WWJD, right? That's the whole idea. What would Jesus do? And it's simple, but really, if you want to know how to walk in a manner worthy that pleases him, if you just simply, every decision, every step you take, you said, what would Jesus do? It's a pretty good good guide. And that's the idea. Jesus lived the perfect human life, and we just want to live it the way he lived it. Or the, the, the ways of Jesus for our denomination, same kind of goal that they're trying to get at with that is, how did Jesus live? What was his way of living? How did he interact with other people in his relationships? How did he speak? How did he resolve conflict? How did he deal with criticism that wasn't due or suffering that he didn't deserve, you know, or, or lies about him? How did he deal with all that that we deal with in our relationships? You can look to Jesus. We have how he dealt with it because he came and put on flesh and lived the same life that we have to live. It's incredible. He's the the image of the invisible God, and he's also the firstborn of all creation. And that word firstborn means supreme in rank or status. So don't think the first one born, right? Think more like back then the firstborn got... The majority of the inheritance was kind of the head of the family. That's really what the what they're getting at here: supreme in rank or status. And so Jesus is supreme over creation. You know, He's not first of created things. He is supreme over creation, and that's going to become really clear in the verses that follow. We'll look at it in just a second. But I just wanted to mention here: this is something that um, people have tried to twist. You know. And there's other religions, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, that say like Jesus was created. He was a first created thing. And so this is, and we'll see in the next verses how clearly that just can't be. The Bible doesn't allow for that in any way. Paul makes it, and the Bible makes it really clear in uh, the verses that follow here. But, but uh, this is one of the things that tries and gets twisted, and that's not what it means. It means supreme in rank over creation. And we'll see that here. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And so you kind of see those three. I highlighted them. All of creation. He's supreme over all creation, right? He's the firstborn of all creation. All things were by him and through him and for him, and so something that Paul's doing here is actually refuting that Gnosticism of the day. That if anybody take Greek philosophy in school, anybody, any Greek philosophy nerds out there? No. All right, cool. Well, I'll breeze right by it. But basically, the, the philosophy, Greek philosophy, was there had to be a first cause and an instrumental cause and a final cause, and so you know, anyways. And Paul's just going, look at like Jesus is all of it. He's the one who created it. The creation happened. He was the force. He actually did the designing and the forming and did the creation. And it was all for him. He's the purpose, right? And, and so it's that he's, he's just kind of wiping out their whole, their whole philosophy and pointing it all to Jesus. But for us, as I got thinking about this, I thought, you know what? Actually, there's, it's really similar for us today. See, in our world today, I'd say the majority of our Canadian culture would, would believe in science, right? And, and when you think about that, their philosophy, if I can call it that, is that they would rather believe, well, they don't even really have an explanation for wherever all matter came from, the by part. Our world doesn't even have an answer for that. They start with all matter in an infinitely dense particle, and then it goes bang, but it already exists. All matter is already there. They don't even have an explanation for how it got there. Right, So they don't even got a one for that one. But then when it comes to the through him part, that Jesus was active in creation and the forming and, and not just everything that he created, but how it would all work together, right? Invisible and visible, so the things both are the matter as well as the, the emotion and the morality and all those other things that aren't matter, right? The world would rather believe the one in bajillion chance that it happened by chance, you know? And, and then in the purpose, the world's left without a purpose. You know, if they really lived out what they say they believe, that there's no God, you're just a bunch of random molecules that came together, you know, you've got no more meaning or purpose than the Kleenex box. Right? It's no different. And so church, this is one of the things that, that we, we always look at, at, at religion and, and science being at odds. But I used to, Amanda and I used to be youth leaders, and I used to say, God and and science are not at odds. Science is just a study of what God made, right? But if you another history, I hope there's some history buffs in here. I love it. But but you know, you go look up the greatest scientists in history were all Christians. I don't know if you knew that. Pretty neat. But this is why is because, as Christians, we have the answers, right? We can actually explain reality, right? Isn't that incredible? We we There's an eternal God who created everything, right? And so that's how all matter came to be. But it wasn't just random. He formed it. He designed it, right? You were formed in your mother's womb, and it was good. And so God put it all together as well as the laws, and then he made us as humans special. And those things that the world can't explain with science, like morality and love and emotion, they just chalking it up to hormones or something, some chemical balance, right? We know, no, there's a God who designed it to work that way and he made us as humans special and we have the ability to have a relationship. All of those answers come because of this, because God created everything and formed it all and designed it all and he did give us, we have real meaning and real purpose because that's what he created us for in its relationship with him not just now but for eternity he made us this isn't we're not just going to turn back into dust you know there's an eternity at stake all of that because of jesus by him through him and for him incredible church we have the answer that makes sense of reality that is awesome and so for him by him through him and when it says all things you know what that means in the greek it means all things. <laughs> it means all things. Universal, everything, seen and unseen, right? Jesus, all things. And he, it even goes in there, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, that piece, those were all things that this Gnosticism taught. These levels were ruled by different dominions and things, and you had to get through them and know how to interact with them. And it's not that Paul's acknowledging that they're real or not. He's just cutting their argument off at the knees and he's just saying, look it, it doesn't matter what you think is out there, Jesus created it. Everything else is created. All things are created, right? He's the uncreated one. He created all things and he has control over all things and it's all gonna, in the end, fulfill his eternal purpose. So you can make up whatever you want and it doesn't matter. Jesus is in control. And for us, I think this is something that it's good for us to remember that there is a spiritual realm there is, there are things unseen, right? And we can, I think it was C.S. Lewis to say we can err in two ways, right? You can either ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, and I think that's the majority of our North American society, right? And then you're susceptible to, to attacks because there is spiritual attacks that come, right? And, and so I would just say be careful. Be careful what you watch, the movies you watch. Be careful what you read. Don't dabble with things, things like horoscopes and stuff like that. Don't get into it. Don't, don't play around with stuff in the spiritual world, right? It is real. And this church supports missions, and if you want to hear, you go talk to some missions and hear their stories. I bet you in other parts of the world, it's much more visible. But I think the devil doesn't have to do it here. He's able to deceive and lead astray and, and that by uh, wealth and comfort and everything else that we pursue. But um, I would just say a war, there's a warning in this not to get not to ignore it, not to get involved with it. But then also the warning that the other warning is that you can get too much into it, right? And there's a warning there as well that that you don't have to go and try and figure it all out, right? And and how to deal with demons and this and that. Because he's going, we have the person who is over all of it, right? So yes there's a spiritual realm, but what do you do with it? You simply take it to Jesus. As a child of Christ, you are covered by the blood of Christ. You don't have to worry about that. They have no control over you. You are his, and all you have to do is go to him. And so that's the, I think, the good warning for us, or good thing for us is don't think it doesn't exist, but when it is, don't be afraid, because Jesus is Lord over all of that as well, the whole spiritual realm unseen and seen. And he is before all things, and all things, and in him all things hold together, verse 17. Before all things, just again, Jesus is eternal, has always existed before all things. And in him all things hold together. I think uh, that's another great one for us to be reminded of, that Jesus didn't just wind up the clock of the world, you know, and sit there and let it go and then go, All right, and God, he's not just watching from heaven going, wow, what's going to happen next? You know, that's cool. No, Jesus is active in the world. He's the active force holding it all together. And that means right down to the molecular level, right at your cells, whatever health concern you're going through, Jesus is in absolute control over that. Right down to every cell in your body, every hair on your head, right? And he's also God in control over the the bigness of the universe, all the motions of the planets, every hurricane and gust of whale and wave, he's in absolute active control every millisecond of the day of every wave and wind gust. He's in absolute active control at all time so that all things are held together by him. And so sometimes that's hard for us to wrestle with. We live in a broken world and it's, you know, why? Why, Jesus? Why is this happening? Why does that happen? But we should take comfort in that he is in control and that someday it all will be put right and that he promises that he, that he will be with us in the trouble while we're here in this broken world. And we look forward to the day when it is put right. But church, he's given us time to tell as many people as we come about, as we can about the gospel. That's really why he hasn't come back yet and made everything right and fixed everything. And we still live in a broken world. So he's the, he's the Lord of all creation. In him, through him, for him. And he is also, verse 18, the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so this verse, there's a lot of discussion around what do they mean by the church? Does, uh, do we mean, uh, is that the the global church, you know, the church throughout time, Jesus, the body of Christ, all Christians, basically everybody who will be be, uh, reigning and ruling with him someday, is that what it means by church, or does it mean the local church, like Huron Chapel in this case? Which one? And I think the answer is simply yes, it's both, right? Jesus is the head of, of course, his body, the bride of Christ, of course, he is the head of the church, but he is also the head of this church, Um, Pastor Ernest and I are under shepherds, under the great shepherd, right? Each of you are a part of this body, and there's lots of passages in the Bible that talk about how you are a part of a body, a local body, a church. And Jesus is the head of this church as well. So he's the head. That word head means, kind of has two meanings. It can mean either source or origin. You think like the the head of a river. Um, Or it can be leader, ruler. And again, I think in this case, um, it means both. Of course, Jesus is the source, the origin of the church, um, but he's also its leader and its ruler. And so um, the application there is obvious, I think. Just uh, we want to be his church. We want to be about building what he wants. And this is always such a good reminder for me that it helps me remember that God has a specific plan for Huron Chapel, you know? that he's the head of the church like he's the chair of the board he's the head lead pastor he's the right like that's jesus and so and so our job then isn't to figure out it's to it's to listen and find out right lord what are you looking to do in your church i mean specific in every ministry in every outreach and how we reach our community and the place you've placed us all the things that make us with each one of you Each one of us as individuals that God and his sovereignty put here to be part of this body, he did that for a reason. He did it with a purpose because he has specific things he has for us. Hopefully, immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, as it says in Ephesians, right? But Jesus being the head of the church means that he has a specific plan for us to live out right now. And so we as a body need to each be our part, as a body part, and then as a body look to discern what that is and then live it out and be obedient to it because he's the head of the church he's our leader our ruler and he's also the firstborn among the dead so um he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead and that firstborn from the dead i think it's kind of neat that uh jesus died and rose again right but, and, and we go, yeah, other people did that too, even to Lazarus. But Jesus was different, right? Lazarus, he, he died, but he came back into the same body. You know, it kind of picked up where he left off. Really, I mean, if you think we've already talked about Jesus, he, he's the Lord of all creation in him and through him, right? And so really all he did with Lazarus was he just, you know, started the heart pumping again, the brain signals firing, the lungs going, right? Like he resurrected that, that failing body right, and started him off, and Lazarus got to live another however many years, right? But Jesus' resurrection, it was different, right? When Jesus resurrected, he, he put on that flesh, he died, but when he resurrected, he got, he's the first one to get that resurrected body right? And and we get some hints that are kind of cool in the scriptures. You know, he's walking through walls or something, appearing in rooms and disappearing. And But but it was real, though. You know, the Bible makes sure it's really clear that he wasn't some disembodied. He eats the fish, and they feel his hands and his side, right? So a real body. He's the firstborn. When Jesus took on that flesh, he took on that, that humanity that we live out. He took it on for all eternity. You realize that? And then the disciples got to see him re- Ascend to heaven to go and to be there, and so he, that that resurrected body—he's the firstborn among the dead. That's pretty cool. And so for us as Christians, we have a real factual proof about the resurrection. I think that's incredible. Like what other religions? All religions pretty much have some kind of an afterlife. But what we have, we have real factual proof. Corinthians says that 500 people saw Jesus bodily, right? After the resurrection, 500 people. We have proof of the resurrection. And so we can go into it with such confidence that because of what Jesus did and that promise that we can have that same resurrected body, And then we go to be with him someday. And then the new heaven and the new earth and we reign with him. It's not, this fights against that whole idea of being an angel on a cloud with a harp, right? No, no, this is going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we reign with him. Amen. And so he's the firstborn among the dead. So all of that is who he is. And then it kind of sums it up here in verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness, that word fullness means the sum total of all divine power and attributes. And the word dwell means at home permanently. So it's not he moved in, right? It has always part of who he is, his essence. The sum total of all divine power and attributes. This again is Jesus is God. Fully God and fully man. He put on flesh. And because of that through him to reconcile all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven making peace by his blood on the cross. So everything we've talked about this morning is what makes the gospel message so incredible. right? That that the fact that there is a God who created you. And he, he created us as humans unique, that he created us with the ability to have relationship. You know, nothing else he created has that ability. And it's a relationship that, it, it's the ability that goes on. It's not just this life, right? Everything else only gets the one physical matter life, right? We live on. And he gave us that ability to have relationship. Not even, not just with each other, which is incredible, but with him. But when he gave us that ability to have relationship, relationship is built on love, right? Caring for the other person. And when you give somebody to have real relationship, they need to have the choice not to have that, right? And so God had to give us that choice to be able to also reject that relationship. And that means that, that but it's a rejecting a, a relationship with the one who gives life. The one who created you for a purpose, to have a relationship with him. And so that's what sin is. Sin is simply rejecting the life-giving God wanting to give you relationship. You're, re- you're rejecting the, the relationship with a life-giving God. You're turning in and you're saying, no, I want to I wanna determine my own purpose. I want to be my own God. I want to do it my way. And that's all sin is, right? It's rebellion against God. All the sins then come out of that. And God designed this world with all the rules and the things, the morality, the right and the wrong, and the justice that we know. Can you think of a world without justice, without consequences? It couldn't work, right? And so God designed this world, and there's consequences for rebellion, right? for making that choice of rejecting. And Jesus, the fact that he is God, He all these things about who Jesus is, it had to be in order to pay for our sin. Because we as humans have rejected the life-giving God, who's an eternal God, we've rejected eternal life. right? We've rejected a relationship not just for now, we've rejected it for all time. And we can't fix it. It says the wages of sin is death right? We've chosen a life apart from God. We've chosen that. And so Jesus came and he put on flesh like we've looked at this morning. And then he lived the same human life we lived. And then he died, right? He died and paid the penalty for sin. But the thing is, because he's God, he was sinless and he didn't pay for his own sin because he didn't have any. And so he was able to pay for our sin. He was able to satisfy those laws that he created, the justice and the consequences that we have that have to be there, right? Jesus was able to, in the flesh, pay for that, that we would have had to pay with with our own lives. He took that upon us. That's why it had to be Jesus. It couldn't be somebody else. It had to be somebody perfect. And it had to be somebody eternal that could do it for all mankind Because he didn't just pay for it at that point. It wasn't just 0 AD, say, you know, white, clean. But what about a second later when someone sinned? Then what? You know, if it had been somebody else. Because Jesus is the eternal God, he was able to pay for all sin, past, present, and future, which is good for us, (laughs) right? And so it is because of all these things that we've looked at today, who he is, right, that he is fully God, that the gospel is the good news, that it pays for our sin. And so if you, um, I don't know where you're at, a lot of you have probably been in church a long time, but if that's clicking for you this morning, if that's already making sense, right? Um, I just wanted to share these two verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it just kind of says exactly what I just explained there. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ, right? That's what Jesus was able to do because he is God, because of all the things we looked at this morning, because of who he is, he was able to do that for us. And so how do you be saved? I love this verse, Romans ten nine. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so I like, I like this verse because I think it lays out salvation pretty good. There's kind of two parts. The first is the belief. It's that song we sang, you know, the, that, that it's the facts of who Jesus are. Do you really believe in your heart that he's the son of God, that he is God, that he actually did come on and put on real flesh, that he actually lived a perfect human life, that he actually died on the cross and that that death actually paid for your sin, that he really did rise again to that resurrected body, that he really did ascend, that he's there Now, preparing a place for us, as he told his disciples, do you really believe those things? Because that's all that's going to matter in eternity when every person stands before him. That's all that's going to be left, is that whether that's what faith is. It's that belief, because that's all you're going to have, right? You're going to stand before him and go, I had faith, I believed these things to be true. That's what I put my faith in, that those things are true. But then there's a second part. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That means he's the boss. That's the repentance. That's the turning from saying I'm living my life my way. I'm my own god. Right? I'm going to choose the what I want to do. And I'm saying I'm turning Jesus you are Lord. I'm choosing to do life the way that the one who designed it to do I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to follow you step by step. And then he gives us the holy spirit within us for us to be able to live that out. And so if you haven't been saved, maybe you could have grown up in church and it would be embarrassing to let people know that, that uh, you know what, I never really got it. Um, but we would rejoice with you. So you can do that, just it's between you and God. You can just pray to him, confess that those things are true, then put your commitment, repent for doing it your way, put your commitment to do, commit to Jesus to doing it his way. And then, confess with your mouth. That's a, you live it out with your life. Tell somebody. Get baptized. That's really what baptism's all about, is, is an outward expression of the commitment you made, right? Get baptized. Tell somebody. And we as a body, we help each other live that out. And then for us as Christians, um, if, you've, if you already know Jesus as that Savior, I just want to go back to verse 18. I skipped over that one part. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that word preeminent, it's the only place it's used in the entire Bible. It's kind of cool. And it means simply to be first. And so Jesus goes, or Paul sums it all up in this way. He goes, all of those things, why? That he would be first. That he'd be first. And so for us as as Christians, is he first? Simply what I want to leave you with today. Is he first? Is he first in, in every area of your life? Is he first in your devotion? Right? What you're I think about those things. We're we're all gonna go home and get up tomorrow morning and do our do go through a week in the life of a human, right? and we're going to have decisions to make, and we're going to have people we're going to interact with, right? And what is it that kind of governs what you do and how you do it, right? Is it putting Jesus first makes him the one who determines that? He's the one that then guides you in all those decisions. Is he first, or is it yourself, right? Are you putting yourself first in any area, Your time, your money, your efforts. Maybe there's a difficult relationship that you haven't resolved yet. Have you put Jesus first in that situation? Or are you only thinking about yourself? Right? And what you do for him, what he's called you to do, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, you know? Are you being obedient to that because he's first? Or are you holding back because there's something else that is first, then in everything he might be preeminent. And so let's be doers of the word this week. Um, again, what's one thing that God is telling you to do this week? One thing from His word, and then I encourage you to write it down and uh, and then tell somebody. Let's do this together. God didn't design this human life to be done alone. This Christian life to be done alone. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all that you are. Um, we thank you for putting on flesh, for coming and being born as a baby and, and, and living the human life, the perfect human life that we couldn't live, for dying the death that we should have died and resurrecting to the life that you offer each one of us. Might you be our all. Might you be first in every area of our life. And would we, this week, walk in a manner that's worthy and that pleases you. You are our king, and we look forward to that day when we're with you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you to stand as you're able.